morning, church. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Please be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. This morning we'll be looking at verses 15 and we'll go to the end of the chapter. I want to give my thanks to Jeremy Mefford for last week handling the scripture so well and giving you all a wonderful exhortation on the goodness of our work. I know that sermon will be a blessing for many years to come as we think on those themes. This morning we turn to the conclusion of John the Baptist's ministry and the handing off of the lead role to our Savior Jesus Christ. And as I begin in verse 15 of chapter 3, remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now while the people were in a state of expectation... And all were reasoning in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. John answered, saying to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son in you. I am well pleased. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Heslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enosh, son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And thus far is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And you may be seated. As we do each Sunday, we'll go now to the Lord in prayer, asking Him for blessing on this time. Father, it is so good to come to you and be able to say that name, Father. And it is because of the true Son of God, Jesus Christ, the new Adam, 
the one who fulfilled all righteousness. It is because of him and him alone that we can come to you and call you Father this morning. We are thankful for that. And I pray that as we, your sons and daughters, consider this text this morning, that you would remind us of how glorious your truth is and how unashamed of it we must be. Please help us this morning as we seek nourishment and food for our souls. Help us to repent where necessary and to be reminded that we are forgiven in Christ and that everything in all creation points to him from the lowliest prophet to a, a voice that comes from heaven from the very mouth of you, Father, saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. May this be the tenor of our whole lives, not just what we say, but in everything that we do, that Jesus is the son of God. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, our family is currently reading through the autobiography of John G. Payton, missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Before he sailed away for work among the cannibals, he worked a home assignment, like a short-term mission in Scotland, kind of the inner city Glasgow area. At one point, he met a deathly ill eight-year-old boy with a conspicuous love for Jesus. Peyton recounts one visit that he had with the family when the boy, all of a sudden stirred by his thoughts, said to his parents that he was afraid. He was fearful that he would not see his parents in heaven. Upon his mother's inquiry, the young believer did not mince words. Because, mom, dad, if you were set on going to heaven and seeing Jesus there, you would pray about it. You would sing about it. You would talk about Jesus to others and tell them of that happy meeting one day in glory. All this my dear Sunday school teacher has taught me, and she will meet me there. Now why did you not, my father and mother, tell me all these things about Jesus if you're going to meet him too? Stirring words. There's something magnetic about an unremitting shamelessness for Jesus. Whether in awe or disgust, people are drawn to this kind of devotion, this kind of fervor. And that's the way that the crowds felt about John the Baptist. He had attracted, at this point, quite the following. You remember, there were masses coming out to see him. But John was under no delusions of what his ultimate role in life was, what God had for him, what his true ministry was all about. Just like the boy in the story I just told, John's words and his life were a continual sign, a continual pointing towards Jesus, saying, every tribe shall come, not to me, but to thee. Worthy lamb, speak through me. Those song words that you just sang a few moments ago. In our text this morning, it's not just those on earth who are speaking of Christ. But we even hear from heaven the Father bear witness about the Son. And church, this morning I would like for you to know that God wishes for our lives to be the same. To be that signpost pointing again and again in everything that we say and do to the glory of King Jesus. Well, last week, as I said a moment ago, Jeremy brought a helpful exposition of verses 10 to 14. And he talked about the potency of a truly Christian vocation, vocation in every sense, Christian in every sense. And that section concluded the summary of John's teaching to the masses. You remember, it was just a summary. We don't, we don't have everything that John said. But this is essentially what he wanted to communicate to the people. He talked about the baptism of repentance. He talked about 
not trusting in Abraham or your lineage for salvation, but trusting in the one to come. And then he gave those practical and helpful applications for what it looks like to have a repentant life, to walk in repentance and bear fruit. And the first thing that we see in our text this morning is that John's ministry was a smashing success. It was extremely successful. In verse 15, Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were reasoning in their hearts about John as to whether or not he was the Christ, and I'll stop there, just consider the, the phrase, a state of expectation. They were all reasoning in their hearts. The hard work of preparing the way, the elimination of excuses, the shattering of pride through the controversial call of repentance, even to the Jewish people, which was followed by that practical discipleship teaching. Beloved, we're meant to see here that it worked. It worked. It profoundly worked. It didn't bring salvation but it did accomplish exactly what God intended it to accomplish. The soil was dressed. The ball was on the tee, so to speak. The pump was primed. John's ministry worked so well, the people were in a state of prostakeo. That's a, a Greek word meaning anticipation. And they, they were anticipating in either hope or some of them perhaps fear at the coming of the Messiah. And they weren't ready. And it had gotten where each of them was asking the question to themselves. They were so ready for the coming king that they were asking themselves, is John that, that man? Is John the coming king? Now let me just pause for a moment to say that preaching the explicit truth of the word of God and commanding repentance in the name of Jesus works. It works. And we have to ask ourselves, so why are we so afraid of doing this? Why are we so ashamed of it? The church in America has spent the last 100 years growing more and more embarrassed about the truth and finding alternatives to a loving but hard call to repentance, to drawing that line in the sand. We blame rebellion against Yahweh on our ancestors or we explain it away through a medical condition. We find common ground with those in hostile opposition to God. Oh, you know, I used to do that too. Oh, we've all struggled with things like that. We don't want to offend them. Instead of speaking frankly about sin, as John shows us here in the text, we dance around it lightly, looking for the quickest path to get to that magic prayer of salvation. Just say these special words and all of your problems will go away. Jesus says a little bit later on in this gospel, there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed. And there's nothing hidden that will not be made known. If we, beloved, hide the truth right now, the truth will find us later. The truth of our schemes and our cowardice will find us out later. The church needs to repent of avoiding the unavoidable. And the truth is unavoidable. You know, Thanksgiving is just around the corner. You celebrate with your family. Many of you will eat the bounty of God's hands, all that He's given to you. And then you'll give thanks. Perhaps you'll give public thanks for various things around the table. Perhaps there will be a moment where you give a private thanks in your heart for an excuse that this year, again, you didn't have to have that hard conversation with that relative, with that family member, the one that you meet every year and the one that you know they're still in their sin and I'm not confronting them about it. But thank you. Oh, there was an excuse this year. They got taken away. Didn't have to talk about it. You might have thoughts. Now is not the time for me to share this with this relative. It, it, this just doesn't feel right. I, 
I don't think they'll hear me. This will cause such a disruption in our beautiful family tradition. This day is about thanksgiving. This day is about Christ. We need to give thanks to Christ, for which this person can't because they're in rebellion against him. But we need to give thanks to God. We need to keep the focus on God, which this person is not because they're in rebellion against him. My mom used to say of thoughts like that, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Brothers and sisters, these kinds of things are the slander of the enemy, and he's playing on our cowardice. He's playing on our fleshy desire to preserve ourself and our name. You see, year after year with this family member, things just get worse and worse and worse. So I encourage you this morning, speak the truth to them because... As we see here in our text and all throughout the Bible, speaking the truth works. It may blow up in your face. It may make a rift in your family for months or even years. But the word of God never comes back empty. It always accomplishes what God wants for it to do. So get the word of God out. Don't be afraid. Speak the truth. Now, getting back to our text this morning, John's hearers were wrong about his identity. He was not the Christ. They asked a logical question, but they missed the theological question. And John answered them, saying to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verses 16 and 17. The answer John gives here is actually a three-part answer. He says, Jesus is stronger than me. Jesus has a better baptism than me. And Jesus brings a greater judgment. Jesus is stronger, has a better baptism, and brings a greater judgment. I want to look at each of those just briefly. Jesus is a stronger man. John makes the statement in verse 16, One is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. Now the rabbis had a tradition that their disciples were required to perform every service for them, which they might also require of one of their slaves, except for untying the sandal straps. This was unclean, and it was considered beneath someone who would one day, presumably, occupy the place of the master, the teacher, the rabbi. John could be, in a sense, saying that he is lower than a slave, and that would be a humbling thing for him to say. It would be a profound thing for him to say. I actually think that there's more going on here than just a, a statement of humility. To loosen the sandal strap is an Old Testament marriage custom. It has to do with leveret or brother-in-law responsibilities to the partner of a deceased relative. Though we would call John and Jesus cousins... In Semitic parlance, John and Jesus were considered brothers, but not in every sense of the word. And this is what's interesting in connection with our passage this morning. Gregory the Great once said, John denounces himself as unworthy to loose the latchet of Christ's shoes, as if he openly said, I am not able to disclose the footsteps of the Redeemer, and I do not presume to take upon myself unworthily the name of the bridegroom. For it was an ancient custom that when a man refused to take to wife her to whom he was obligated, whoever should come to her betrothed by right of kin was to loose his shoe. In other words, John is saying, this man can redeem the bride, but I can't even come close to redeeming this bride. He is far mightier than I am. He has the only right of redemption. Though I'm related to him, I can't even come close to doing 
what God is calling him to do. He who comes after me has actually long since been before me. Is this what your life says about your Savior? That you are, as John says in John chapter 3, the friend of the bridegroom. And the second thing that he says is that Jesus brings a better baptism. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, verse 16. Now Luke doesn't go into a lot of detail here, but he does contrast immersion in water with an immersion of the Spirit. Anyone can baptize. John did that. And the Jews, as I mentioned several weeks ago, performed proselyte baptisms prior to the time of the New Testament. And there is still rich symbolism in the baptism event of Jesus. We'll get to that in just a minute. But the reality of the sign, the thing that was signified, what the immersion points to is the flooding of the heart with the Spirit of Christ. And no man can make that happen. John's saying, I'm just doing this out here in the river, but I can't put the Spirit of God into your heart. But the mighty one can. This is the fulfillment of what Ezekiel saw when he said in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my ways and my statutes and you will be careful to obey my judgments. No prophet, no elder, no father or anyone else can do this. Only Jesus can baptize with the Holy Spirit. And lastly, Jesus comes with a greater judgment. There's two parts to this. John says that he will baptize you not only with the Holy Spirit, but he will baptize you with fire. Inundation with the Spirit is accompanied by fire. Some think that this fire is the same fire that attended the Spirit for empowerment at Pentecost from Acts chapter 2, verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. That's from the Legacy Standard Version. I actually like the way that that Greek is translated there. Because the problem with this image is the language of Acts 2 utilizes the image of fire to explain the spreading of the tongues, not the thing that appeared in the sky. The tongues are coming down, whatever image that was, but it's spread through the congregation like fire. Instead, here in our text, the fire is the purification work done by the Holy Spirit. As God regenerates His children, they are tested, they are refined, they are made more like Jesus, day after day after day. And in so doing, the Spirit self-sorts humanity into two different distinct groups, the wheat and the chaff. You can see that in the next verse. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is winnowing the world, clearing the work from the threshing and separating the wheat from the chaff. And notice this. Nobody escapes the flames you're either going to experience the fiery work of the Spirit in your life here in this time, or you will experience the unquenchable fires of an unending hell. So I ask you this morning, unbeliever who's joined us for church service this morning, right now, coming to Christ probably seems an unbearable task to you. He will expose your darkest secrets. He will make you come clean on all your lies. He will purge you of the sinful desires that right now are the most dear things to you. In your mind, you cannot fathom how you could ever come up with the strength to submit to Him. It's not even a category. But hear me now. Repentance 
admitting to God that you are wrong and he is right, in regards to your sin, repentance works. You will be made clean. He will, he will not just reveal your secrets, but he will wipe them away. He will purge them completely. You will be purified more and more so every single day. The burden that is crippling your progress in life right now and crushing you under its enormous weight. The burden that you're currently lying to yourself about. Saying things in your head like, I'm fine. Don't have any problems. People just don't understand me. I mean, I do have problems, but everybody else has problems too. Those sinful, rebellious thoughts Jesus can set you free from. There is a wonderful scene in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce where a man enters the narrative who's been given over to the sin of lust. His sin is depicted as a small red lizard on his shoulder and that lizard has complete dominion over this man. And then a fiery messenger comes to the man and asks permission. May I please kill that thing on your shoulder? He asks him over and over again in the story. May I kill it? May I kill it? May I kill it? And this lost one, often at the prompting of the lizard, rattles off excuse after excuse. A whole string of excuses. But then, in the narrative, the way that Lewis writes this, and it's just brilliant, something in his mind changes. The man says, I know that killing it will kill me. To which the messenger replies, It won't, but supposing it did. And the man comes to himself and says, You're right. It would be better to be dead than alive with this creature. That's it, lost person. That's it. Agree with Yahweh about your sin. Put all of your hope in Jesus. You will be made clean by the fire of the Spirit. He will purge you from all of that unrighteousness. The sin in you will die... And you will have died, but your life is hidden now with Christ in God. If you don't, you will still get fire, but it will be a kind that never goes out. It will keep working on you to clean you, but your sin will remain, and so you will forever suffer the penalty for its presence. Unbeliever, come to Jesus. That man in the story who was was daily tortured by that lizard, in the story, as Lewis writes, he becomes a new creation. He becomes a a whole new creature. It's a, a miraculous thing that happens to him in this spiritual world that they're in. And even the lizard that was killed in the story then turns into a horse, which the man sets off to ride and serves him. Uh, the horse serves him forever. And as, as the man rides away on this glorious horse... Heaven sings these words. The master says to our master, Come up, share my rest and splendor, till all natures that were your enemies become slaves to dance before you. The strengths that once opposed you shall be obedient fire in your blood and heavenly thunder in your voice. It concludes by saying, Let God overcome us. So that overcome, we may be ourselves. And what does that look like? He says, we desire the beginning of your reign as we desire the dawn and the dew, wetness at the birth of light. Christian, there's something good for us here too. James says, or excuse me, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, 
you may rejoice with exultation. That's from 1 Peter chapter 4. The fire, beloved, that you are facing is the continuation of the baptism of Jesus in your life. It is evidence of your membership in the family of God. The only thing that the flame can destroy in you is chaff. Yes, I know that it hurts. And no, it is not going to stop until you breathe your last breath. But it means that you are God's child. A fully redeemed child. Even if it means that your life comes to a bitter end, if you are jailed, for example, for your faith in Jesus, don't stop rejoicing and keep on fighting. The flame cannot hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. This is the, the good news that John was exhorting the people with. This is what he was telling them. This is the, the exhortations that he proclaimed the gospel to the people from verse 18. Yet even with all of the success of John's ministry, the purifying fire would come to him too. Not even he could escape the flames. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now this event is a brief fast forward into the narrative. Luke is putting this here so we can see that John is exiting the story as a central figure. He'll make a short cameo appearance later on in the gospel. But notice this before we move on to the baptism of Jesus. Notice the cause of his suffering. It wasn't because he was playing the nice guy. He wasn't in jail because of his respect for this ironclad doctrine of the separation of church and state. It wasn't because he missed out on the wonderful sermons from evangelical pastors today who tell their congregations to not shove Jesus down people's throats and avoid the law and just get to the gospel or just submit yourself to the governing authorities. John was a worshiper of Yahweh. He respected God's law and he took seriously his God's commission to him. Which meant that he loved his power-rich enemies to the extent that he was willing to share the same message with them that he shared with the rest of the masses. He didn't change things because these people could change his life, which they did. He didn't draw arbitrary lines in order to cushion him from having to say hard things to people who could do serious damage to him. He first preached to the crowds. Think about this. It kind of builds on itself. He first preached to the crowds. Then he preached to the religious elites. Then he preached to Roman soldiers who did have the power to kill him. And now he's preaching to the head of the Jewish state. He not only told him that his marriage to Herodias was sin, which it was sinful on two accounts. They both had been divorced in the past, and their marriage would have also constituted incest under biblical law. But as verse 20 tells us, he rebuked Herod for all the wicked things that he had done. It's not just that he was in an incestuous, inappropriate relationship. Everything that he was doing wrong as the leader of Israel. John said all of it. I'll point it out. This, this, this. He wasn't afraid. Beloved, there is not one realm in all of creation to which the people of God are prohibited from proclaiming the explicit truth of Jesus. The family is not off limits or the extended family, including that brother or sister or cousin who is ruining their life, living in open sin. And they wear Christianity around like a sweet tea and Jesus shirt from Hobby Lobby. Your boss at work and your co-workers need that truth and you are called by God to speak it to them. As does your local grocer or the lady who cuts your hair. Most of our county commissioners need to hear that their personal sin and the bad leadership that flows from it is an abomination to God. And so does the woman going into the murder mill to hire an assassin against her own child. The woman that Republicans in the Tennessee right to life say is a victim, and that we should shield her from 
those words of truth. Beloved, God did not give us a safe space from proclaiming the truth. No one, Jesus says, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Luke chapter 8, verse 16. It sounds ridiculous, right? How many people would put a lamp under your bed or cover it with some kind of container? No one does that. No one. So count the cost because Jesus expects us to speak the truth. Last week, we, uh, I've been making our way through Jeremiah in the Bible reading plan. And you may have heard Jeremiah referred to as the weeping prophet for good reason. Even though he knows what the cost will be, and he often complains to Yahweh, he says, oh, but you know what they're going to do to me if I say this, right? But he can't help but speak the truth. He can't keep the basket over his candle. If I say, I will not remember him, I will not speak any more in his name, then in my heart, it becomes like a fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in. I can't prevail. Are you so compelled by your love for Jesus, church? Like the boy in the opening story, you will say the hard thing in an awkward moment, no matter what it costs. Are you done with excuses for why this would not be the right time to speak the truth when someone is uttering nonsense and everybody's nodding their heads in agreement? Do you want to demolish that greased runway to hell that you've made for the lost in your family or the community through years of hiding Jesus from them? Beloved, let us repent together that we would not keep Christ covered any longer. Let us commit to not backing down from the opportunities that God gives us to proclaim the truth. As I said last time, just say it. Say it in love. Say it with poise. But just say it. So with the Apostle Paul on Judgment Day, we can say, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Well, let's turn to now verse 21 and look at the baptism of Jesus. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus also was baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. John has exited the narrative, and I mentioned he'll come back in briefly later on in Luke. Moving forward, it's all about Jesus. And if you've read this text and come away with a number of questions, you're not alone. The church has been puzzled by how all the gospel writers treat the baptism of Jesus with such brevity. It's, it's an important note. They make note of it, but it raises a bunch of questions, theological in nature, and what do we do with that? How do we answer this? What, what, what do we do with a sinless son of God who's participating in a baptism of repentance? It's probably the biggest one. Those questions, though, aren't the thing that Luke is interested in us seeing in this text. They're good fodder for the late night Calvin and Hobbes discussion. But grammatically speaking, the main thing is what... Nobody questions. Nobody questions the actual main point of the text. And that's this. The testimony of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. The baptism is important, but it's ultimately subordinate to the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit and the confession of the Father. Luke moves quickly through this. He says, Jesus was in line to be baptized. And then he was baptized. And afterward he was praying. And the clouds were parted. And then one of the most significant texts in all of the Bible. It's the first time in the New Testament. And perhaps it's the most explicit scene of this we get in all of Scripture. All three persons of the Trinity appear together in one scene. 
Sorry, oneness Pentecostals, but I'm not sure how you make your way through this text. Identifying with his people, exemplifying their need to repent, though he has no need to repent, the son goes in faith to the waters of baptism as a signal to all that this is the one the Spirit descends visibly on the Son like a dove. And then the Father offers an audible confirmation personally to His Son, but which everyone hears. This is massive. Yes, Jesus was praying when the Father spoke, and there's some truth that we can pull out of that. For example, baptism should be entered into with much prayer. But still, the emphasis is all on the Father and all on the Spirit's confirmation of the Son. Consider first, the Spirit came like a dove. You should get a ping of a Bible story involving water and a dove. That should come up in your head. The great flood of the whole earth, which drowned the sin of the world under the judgment of God and through which a few chosen persons were saved. And then the dove, the sign of peace to show that the waters were subsiding. The dove in Noah's day came and rested on the ark, that vessel in which Noah's family sought refuge in and they were saved from the wrath of God. The unspoken testimony of the Spirit is Jesus is the ark of your salvation. Jesus is the ark. All the types and shadows fulfilled find their yes and amen in this one, the arrows all pointing right here, Jesus is the ark of your salvation. And in glorious unison with the Spirit, the voice from heaven, you are my son, I love you, and you please me. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 1, which the Father is here quoting. It reads in the Old Testament text, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42.1 Now, much can be said about the statement from the Father, and I want to come back to that in just a moment. But allow me to tie in just briefly this long genealogy that follows, because it's important for our understanding here. Just briefly, in verse 23, Luke tells us that Jesus started his ministry at about 30 years of age. Interestingly, Ezekiel became a prophet at age 30. Israel's priests entered the service as young as age 30. That's from Numbers 4. And David became king at age 30. Prophet, priest, and king. I told you, this section is loaded with significance. All signs pointing to Jesus. Luke also tells us that this genealogy that he's recording here is a legal genealogy. Jesus himself was supposed the son of Joseph. That supposition language is meant to communicate the leveret position that Joseph took over Jesus. That he was not the biological father, but he was the legal father of our Lord. And that may play into the ways in which Luke's list uh, doesn't match Matthew's all the way through. Many Bible teachers, like R.C. Sproul, surmise that Luke's uh, list follows Mary's family tree, uh, whereas Matthew's follows Joseph, Joseph's family tree. However, the, the two lists differ in far more significant ways than even that. You know that Matthew places his genealogy at the very beginning of his gospel. In typical ancient Near Eastern fashion... Matthew works his way forward in time from Abraham ultimately getting to the son of Mary. He connects, by doing this, Jesus to the covenant family of Israel and also to the throne line of David. Jesus is both the legitimate son of Israel and the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. That's the theme that Matthew wanted to capture in his genealogy. But Luke has a different set of motives. His genealogy comes right on the heels of that paternal commencement, you are my son. And this is key for our interpretation. The family tree is not merely biographical, but it's significantly theological. 
Unlike Matthew, Luke works backwards from Joseph breezing by Abraham and he goes all the way back to Adam. And he accomplishes two things with his list. I've mentioned this earlier, but Luke connects Christ this way with all humanity, not just the Jews. And this is a theme that's already come up a bunch in Luke. Zechariah said that the Christ comes to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to direct our feet into the way of peace. The angel said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Simeon said, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory of your people Israel. John the Baptist said, All flesh will see the salvation of our God. You know all this stuff online recently about how Jesus was Jewish? It's like they're trying to chide Christians. Christians are even saying stuff like this. Y'all know Jesus was a Jew, right? Yes, I know that he was Jewish. And in his death, he both fulfilled and made obsolete the old covenant and solidified forever the sonship of anyone who believes in him, whether they be Jew or otherwise. He is not just the Savior of the Jews, but he is the Savior of all people. And the second thing that Luke reveals to us, and this is just beautiful, that Jesus is in fact the second Adam, and he is the true Son of God, the new and better Son of God. Notice in verse 38, the very end of our text, Adam is called Tutheu, the Son of God. Nowhere in the Old Testament or in the Pseudepigrapha or the writings of the Qumran or in any rabbinic tradition or writing is anyone called the Son of God. Nowhere. But Luke here says that Adam is the Son of God. He's talking about the Adam that we know from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. The same Adam who failed his Creator and Heavenly Father was cast out from his presence, who infected the entire human race with sin and corruption, which would lead to the corporate damnation of all image bearers of God. What truth did you recite in the catechism this morning? The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself but his posterity, all mankind, descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Thanks to Adam, no one on this list was ever called son of God. And then... In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, a voice from heaven. You are my son. And not only that, but he says, I love you. And not only that, but he says, you are pleasing to me. A son, a true son, who is loved by the Father and who is pleasing. This is the final Adam the new Adam, the true Son of God, the one who would start a new race of men, born not of flesh but of the Spirit, whose descendants would not come through normal human generation but through regeneration. Do you see, church, all the signs in this passage, everything crescendoing up to this climactic, booming voice of even the Father, this is Him. Jesus is the Son of God. If I could state it further... Jesus is the true Israel. He is the Israel of God. There's a lot of talk amongst Christians today about the Jews. The war has stirred up those questions in us. How we should view this ethnic group of people that have those biological ties to the Old Testament people of Israel. Thanks to the radical bifurcation of the people of God into two separate groups taught by the proponents of dispensationalism. Many today, perhaps some of you sitting here, have been told and still somewhat believe 
that God has two different peoples that he's working with. And there the two shall mix. He's going to deal with the Jews over here. He's got the church over here. So you keep Fox News on. You keep thinking about the people of God. And you wonder, should I pray for the nation of Israel? Should I get the Jerusalem Times? Should I think about questions of eschatology? Are, are we approaching the end? Now, I don't have time to go into this issue at length right now. But I want to say a few things here. And I'm going to support this with Scripture. Who are the people of God? Well... Who does Luke say in our text this morning is the Son of God? Who's the Son of God who was not cast out? Who is the Son of God who is beloved of the Father? Who is the Son of God who is pleasing to Him? Jesus Christ. And God's family are those who have been born of Jesus Christ by faith. The church is, and if you'll receive it, has always been the true Israel of God. We just went through John the Baptist's warning not to say, he said this, don't say to yourself, but Abraham's my ancestor. So I'm in, right? He, he said, don't say that. Jesus told the priests and the scribes, the Jews, that they were the sons of the devil. How's that for an anti-Semitic statement? The whole book of Galatians seeks to make the point that there is no more Jew and Greek. It blows up the whole dispensational system. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul said to the Romans that not all Israel is Israel, but only those of faith are counted as offspring. Jared Sparks recently said on the Shepherd's Script, the Bible is explicit on this. Abraham's offspring are not those living in Jerusalem right now. It's not Israel, the bloodline of Adam. It's you and I who belong to Jesus. This is unbelievably clear. This is not cryptic. This is not something we had to figure out using some scriptural origami. These are plain passages telling us who are the children of Israel. It's plain as the text in front of us. Now, I know you might have a question, but does that mean that God will not work for the good of ethnic Jews in the future? I still have that question. Chris, what do you think? Well, that's a question that we could probably have some healthy discussion over. But let me ask you, and I'm, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but let me ask you. Is Judaism good or evil? That's a hard question. Before you jump to, I really want to say good, remember that John has prepared the way. He warned the people not to trust in their Jewish heritage. Their Messiah has come in the flesh. The Spirit came down on him saying, this is the ark of your salvation. The Father spoke so that everybody standing there could hear, this is my most precious son. I love him. And almost all of the Jews said, no, he's not. He's not ours. He's not one of us. That's what the Bible calls an evil, unbelieving heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. I know there was a remnant that was saved. Paul told us that. The apostles, the disciples of Jesus, the handful of faithful saints throughout the Old Testament who were looking forward to the Messiah. Those who were saved on credit, they were looking ahead. But Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. Today, they are in rebellion against God, and they will face his wrath unless they repent. So how should we view Israel? Like lost Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and animists and atheists, all who need Jesus. 
Should you pray for them? Sure. But pray that they would repent of their rebellion against God. Don't pray that they could set up another temple which they could worship a God that is not the complete, one, true, final revelation of God. And so that they can have their pride parades out in front of it and their support for abortion and following the West in greater and greater rebellion against God who graciously revealed Himself to their forefathers. Pray that God would use this conflict to bring both Jews and Muslims to their knees in submission to Christ. That's the peace that everyone wants. Peace does not come in granting them this territory or they can have this bank or we rebuild the temple. Peace comes in acknowledging the kingship of Jesus, the one on whom the dove came and the one the Father's voice from heaven came and proclaimed, I am proud of my son. That's the true son of God. Now, in conclusion, I want to mention one more thing about the Father's words in verse 22. This is the first of three affirmations that Yahweh will speak verbally, audibly, about His Son. In Mark chapter 9, on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. This is my Son, I love Him, listen to Him. The third one is just prior to the crucifixion, where Jesus asked the Father to glorify His own name. And the response comes, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again through the crucifixion of Jesus. Three separate times through the ministry of Jesus, the Father affirms the person and work of the Son, the true Son, the Adam who was to come. From the lowly prophet John to the creator of heaven and earth, all testimonies to this point in Luke are that big arrow pointing towards this man. This is the central figure in all of human history. Brothers and sisters, is this what people will say of us? That his speech and her attitude and their family and that business and this church and our county, that everything pointed to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to answer my own question by leaving you with an affirmation today. Yes, yes. Will people say that of us? Yes, they will. Yes, they will. Our church, along with countless others around the nation and also the world, has said in repentance, enough is enough. We have begun the hard work of throwing off what the church today calls acceptable hindrances and the sin which so easily entangles. And we are, with our brothers and sisters around the world, once again running the race. We may not move the ball very far down the field, but by God's grace, empowered by the same Spirit that descended on Christ and affirmed His ministry, and with the Son of God's pure blood running through our veins, we will be known as the generation that got up and started fighting again. Our children will not say of us, my parents never told me about Jesus, but rather, we spoke of Him and sang of Him, and prayed to Him regularly, and Mom and Dad showed me how to repent to Jesus. Because they did it often in front of me. And through this small-scale, hidden revival taking place right now, the voice of God will again be heard in this county through our lives. This Jesus is God's beloved Son. Come and be satisfied in Him. So brothers and sisters, go forth today, speak and live like Jesus is your king. For in him, you too are beloved sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is good and it is holy and it is true. And we want to be unashamed of it. Lord, we know how this story ends because your promises hold true. We know that you begin the good work and you bring it to completion. You don't stop. We want to see all of Anderson County come to Jesus. 
May it be so. And if not in our lifetimes, then generation after generation after generation, may they look back and say, God did something there. He began something there. And we started hearing again the echoes of that voice. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Come and be satisfied in Him. May it be said of our generation. We trust that it will in Jesus' name. Amen.